So, uh, looking a little more closely at our, at our text, um, the word patience uh, is a translation of the Greek word makrothumia. Uh, it's other, where, other places it's sometimes translated long-suffering, especially when uh, the referent is God himself. So patience and long-suffering, makrothumia. And I need to warn you right up front that I have a lot to say about this topic today. So this is not only going to be a sermon about patience, but it's, it's going to be a practical lesson in patience. And, and I've actually instructed the, the chairman of the, of the elders to take notes on anybody who would dare to leave early when we're talking about the Christian virtue of patience. Um, I think we all have an idea of what patience and its opposite, impatience, look like, um, especially in the extremes. Okay, so, so while all of us have a measure of patience, we, we don't really think about patience on the average, but we do, we, we, we can probably each think of somebody who we consider to be really patient, and we're pretty quick to recognize when somebody acts out of frustration or impatience and, and kind of goes beyond what's, what's considered appropriate in, in that regard, right? Um, And, and I think some of us would recognize when we think about ourselves that, that we have a, a certain measure of patience. Some of us, especially those of us who happen to be middle children, have more than the average patience. Others of us, like firstborns, um, maybe not so much. Um, but I don't think the passage here uh, through the Holy Spirit and Paul is really talking about natural patience um, that, that we that, we think that we're talking about there. Uh, what's really in view here is what would be called pneumatic patience, that which comes of the pneuma, P-N-E-U, the spirit. Uh, and, and, and we're not to rely on our own nat natural patience. Um, and I think this, this also has a bearing on the question of whether, whether somebody is, you know, it's easy for us to see an instance of impatience or patience and either ridicule or glorify that, when really at the spiritual level, things might be completely different. So in other words, you might perceive me as really patient, whereas God might see that as, as kind of a, a self-righteous facade that actually hinders me from coming to him to supply my need for patience, my, my true need for, spirit, for his spiritual patience. By the same token, uh, you might see somebody acting out in impatience and, and kind of, you know, put your finger on that. In God's perspective, it might actually be the opposite, that, that he knows that his Holy Spirit has come a long way in transforming that individual and that this particular instance of impatience might actually be just another opportunity for that person to acknowledge his, his problem and, and repent of it and come to the cross for the Holy Spirit's patience in his life. So, so there's a sense in which as we just look around at externals, I'm, I'm letting you off the hook here if, if you still struggle with impatience, but not entirely. So I, I think really with regard to all of these fruits of the Spirit, what, what Paul is saying here is that those of us who have entered into relationship with the Lord. Those of us who especially have been on a long walk of obedience, having crucified ourselves daily 
and yielded to the Holy Spirit, we ought to be growing in our love and our joy and our patience, etc. And, and we ought to be growing in ways that are at least discernible to those closest to us, okay? Um, there's another passage that's, um, that, that comes up when you think about patience, and that's from the very first part of the book of James, the, the epistle of James. And James says in verse three and following of, of chapter one, um, count it all joy when you meet various trials, for we know that the testing of our faith produces patience, and let patience have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here, patience is, is not the end goal, you know, not a virtue that's a, an end goal in itself, but it's kind of a, uh, an, unwar- uh, an unlooked for side benefit. And really what, what James is saying there is not that you should go seek trials in order that you might grow in patience, but that if, if you find yourself in trials that test your faith, take comfort in the fact that as a, as a byproduct of those trials, the Lord's gonna have opportunity to work his patience into you. Interestingly, the, the word translated patience there is not our word macrothemia, it, it's a different Greek word. It's uh, hupomenos, and it has this connotation of being worked out through trials. Interestingly, hupomenos is never used of God himself, whereas macrothemia is. But when I come across passages like this, I kind of wonder, you know, what did they have to be patient about? What, what did Paul and James have to deal with as far as patience? They'd never experienced customs in the Houston airport. They never experienced the delay that going through Madras during summer reroute construction entails today. So, so what did they have to do with patience? Um, I want to suggest to you that we live in a, a, a culture that really struggles with, with the issue of waiting and being patient. Uh, that, that we are so used to being gratified immediately of all our desires and wants that, that this is really a struggle for us. Um, there's actually a research done by Microsoft in which they've tracked a number of individuals continually from 2000 to today. And the results of their research is to conclude that between 2000 and 2014, Americans, uh, the, the attention span of Americans has decreased from 12 seconds to eight seconds. <laughs> and, and these same researchers consider the concentration span of a goldfish to be nine seconds. Now, I know I, had no, I ran no risk of offending anyone here because if you're a regular here and, and sit through Ken's sermons week after week, then you're way out here on the bell curve of attention span. And, and if you're not one of those people, if you fit right into the middle of, of the bell curve of, of Microsoft research, then I lost you 20 minutes ago. <laughs> and in order to draw some of those people back in now, let me talk about sex for a minute. So all of the research regarding, um, regarding waiting for sex indicates that, that those who are impatient in terms of physical intimacy, 
Those, those who are part of the hookup culture where, where it's just natural to, to have sexual relations with a number of people um, have severe difficulties when it comes to actually forming lasting relationship when Mr. Miss Wright comes along. Okay, does that make sense? And not only that, we don't have to be talking about serial dating or hookups. It, even if you're a person who's, who's really waiting for the Lord to bring the right person into your life, research shows that long-lasting, lifelong marital relationships, the success of such things depends upon moving slowly through the various stages of intimacy. Okay? So, impatience in, in becoming intimate really determines the su success or failure even of your relationship with Mr. Wright, if, if you intend that to be a lifelong relationship. And, and, and so this is true not because, you know, God's a killjoy or because the Bible says so. It's true because the very good world that God created in which he meant for flourishing lifelong intimacy between man and wife the creation is designed that way for it to be true. And so much is that truth a part of the fabric of this universe that, that even Guns N' Roses apparently got it right in their song titled Patience. <laughs> so we have several examples from scripture of, of patience and, and some examples of impatience. Um, and, and some of these, but not all, involve a time element. So, so oftentimes we think of patience as involving waiting for a long time period. In the case of Job, that's, that's not so much. And Job is really the prime example of patience. Uh, it's, it's frequent to hear somebody, well, not so much anymore, but, but it used to be a, a byword to say, you have the patience of Job. Well, well Job's suffering was very deep and all-encompassing, but there's no, there's no real indication that it traversed a long time. Um, so, so in Job's case, patience really means just suffering well in, in the circumstances that you find yourself um, and, and not being angry at God, not, not uh, complaining and that sort of thing. Abraham and Sarah, of course, uh, were a testimony to patience. They, they heard a clear promise from God uh, about a child that would be born but the fulfillment of that promise was very much delayed until they were uh, well up in years. Moses is kind of a counterexample in that uh, impatience and frustration came out a couple times in his life and, and really restricted the amount of blessing he, re he received. He, he too had a clear call from God to, to be the leader, to work justice for his own people. But af right after he heard that call, he, he acted impatiently, and, and, and killed an Egyptian against God's will. And, and of course, then he was kind of banished to the wilderness for 40 years. And actually, when, when God reinstituted the call, Moses had forgotten all about the, the promise of God's blessing. And then again, when, when he was leading the people through the wilderness, um, Moses acted out of frustration and, and hit a rock in a way that ultimately led to his being denied access to the, the blessing of the promised land. Uh, David is a good example of patience. He, he, he was anointed king by the prophet Samuel while he was still a boy, and yet endured years and years of being wrongly persecuted, uh, waiting patiently until the actualization of his king, 
kinghood um, came about. And then, of course, we can look to Jesus himself as an example of patience. And uh, very quickly, we just think about his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. Now, how many of us have that kind of patience? And then, of course, the, the supreme example of patience is, is Jesus' calmly, uh, passively suffering the excruciatingly painful and unjust execution that he endured on the cross for our sakes. Um, one of the, the best articulations of, of God's long-suffering or patience is in 2 Peter 3.9, um, which reads... Uh, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient, and that's our word, macrothumia. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And there's parallels where God is patient in the Old Testament, like with the Ninevites and, and later with the Canaanites. Um, but there's a sense in which referring to God as patient or long-suffering are ultimately anthropomorphisms. So anthropomorphisms are where we use human language and human categories to describe something that's not really in those categories. And the Holy Spirit does this with God all the time. He uses terms that we can understand, in this case, temporal terms, terms that have to do with time, when in fact, time doesn't apply to God as it applies to us. Do you understand that? Um, so one, one of the passages that, uh, that articulates this pretty well is Hebrews 13, 8, where it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that verse and a whole lot of other verses go to making up the, the traditional Christian doctrine of God's unchangingness or unchangeableness. And, and, and so God is outside time. Um, in 2 Peter 3.8, which is just the verse prior to the one I just read uh, a few minutes ago, says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Um, so, so time is a created thing. Time is part of this universe that is created, whereas God is an uncreated being who is outside of time, even though he has the ability to enter into uh, the time as we know it. Um, and, and scripture declares this in a number of different ways, but the very first verse of your Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Hebrew words that are translated the heavens and the earth, um, shamayim iretz, is what's called a Hebrew merism. A merism is a combination of words which means one very specific thing, even though the, the words might have a whole lot of other uses. So, so iretz, earth, soil, dirt, a whole lot of different things. Shamayim, skies, clouds, heavens. But when you bring them together, Shamayim Eretz, the heavens and the earth, means one thing, and that is the totality of this universe of creation. Um, in 2 Timothy 1.9, where Paul is talking to Timothy about, um, about 
the certainty of, of Christ coming again and, and of, of the wonderful thing it is that, that Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins, he says that that salvation in Jesus Christ was planned before time began or, or before the ages began. So time is a created thing and a part of this universe. And, uh, and science has verified that. In, in my lifetime. So arguably the greatest discovery of the 20th century was that in fact the universe had a beginning, that the universe hasn't been here forever. Um, now while there's always been very good logical, philosophical arguments that, that seem to show that the universe had a beginning and that, that there is therefore a cause of the universe, a God, science didn't come along and verify that until fairly recently. And, and in the, what's called the space-time theorem of general re relativity, which we're talking about the early 1970s, it was a mathematical proof that not just matter and energy in this universe came into existence, but that simultaneously time itself and space itself came into existence. So God is outside time. And and this has a lot of implications for how we read the Bible and how we live our lives. I think the, the first one would be the obvious, it has implications on the whole issue of unanswered prayer or delayed prayer. That God's answer to prayer doesn't always come in the same timeline that we're hoping for, right? But, but I think there's um, at, at least four other implications that I, I just want to mention. I'll, I'll go a little bit into the fourth one, but the other three are, well, let's consider them cans of worms that I don't really want to open. So we're just going to crack the lid on these cans of worms and then stuff, stuff the worm back in and close it again. But I, but I just want to mention that this issue of acknowledging that God's time is not our time um, has, has certain implications. And, and the first one would be that when we read about heavenly realities and, and future kingdom realities, the Holy Spirit necessarily uses temporal terminology, time-based terminology, so that we might get a picture when the reality won't be affected by our days and seasons and years. Does that make sense? So um, Amazing Grace talks about you know, when we've been there 10,000 years. Now, now I believe that, that the future kingdom of heaven will, so that the new heavens and new earth will look a whole lot, will be recognizable as somehow part of this heavens and earth, but in a, in a glorified way that makes things completely different. But, but the fact of the matter is, we won't be singing praise to God day after day or year after year because time as we know it on this, in this universe, won't apply. Okay, so that's the first one. We, we necessarily have temporal language used to, to try to get us a picture of realities that, to which our time won't apply, okay? Uh, a second implication, I think, is, is that it kind of explains some of the weirdness of much of biblical prophecy. Okay, so uh, in chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew, Jesus is asked by his disciples, so when, 
when will these events happen? And they're talking about the end of the age and um, the, the closing of, of this period of time and that sort of thing. And Jesus' answer, which has to do with persecution and destruction and, and falling of temples and, and even natural disasters and, and things like that, well, it seems that it had a partial fulfillment in the lifetime of the people to whom he was talking, that it has a partial fulfillment throughout church history, and that there will be a future time when, when the rest of the fulfillment takes place. And that's weird for us, because we don't think of time that way. But somehow, because God's not in time, Jesus was able to prophesy in, in this way that is weirdly fulfilled. Uh, a third little can of worms is, is that I think this recognition that, that God is not experiencing time as we are means that, that recent insistence by portions of the church that the creative days described in Genesis 1 necessarily mean that we ought to equate them with our solar 24-hour days are misguided, okay? The days of creation have long been understood throughout church history as, as being something other than days as we experience them. And, and the, the revelation by God in creation would indicate that they weren't 24-hour periods consecutive about 6,000 years ago. So even our understanding of, of the creation account in, in Genesis 1 rightly depends upon our recognizing that God doesn't experience time the same way we do. The fourth implication, and I, I want to go into this one a little bit more, is that I think it, it provides the resolution for what has been an ongoing paradox in, in the church, uh, teaching of scripture that seems to be contradictory and, and which has yielded a whole lot of heat and not a whole lot of light. And I'm talking about the issue of free will and human responsibility, which scripture clearly teaches, versus the issue of somehow God having sovereign control over all things, including the decisions and, and actions that we undertake, okay? So free will versus... God's sovereignty, or sometimes uh, God's sovereignty referred to as predestination, or, or when what's at issue is whether or not we are saved, election. Again, Bible, the Bible teaches both of these, which seem to be contradictory. And I want to suggest this morning that, that the resolution to them is to realize that there's a time perspective that's different. That when, when, when we're told that we have accountability for our decisions and actions, that's from our perspective of time. And when we're told by the Bible that God is in sovereign control even over our decisions and actions, that that's from a completely different perspective of time. Let me show you how this works even just within our own time frame. So prior to my becoming a Christian, uh, I had a decision to make. I had to either choose to uh, continue to reject God's free offer of salvation and relationship with him and abundant and eternal life, or I could choose to accept that wonderful thing. And I knew that, that the outcome depended upon my decision, that, that there really were consequences that flowed out of a free will choice that I had. 
Now, years later, when I look back on that decision, I can rightly, from a, from a different perspective of time, even though it's still within the same timeline, say, well, that wasn't me. That was the Holy Spirit that drew me to the foot of the cross. You see that? In the same way, when we talk about sanctification, this, this whole deal of following Jesus and becoming more Christ-like, I know that every day I need to die to self and make the decision to yield my life to his Holy Spirit in order to, to progress in that direction, right? But if I wake up years from now and realize that I'm more patient, more loving, more kind, more joyful than I once was, I'll be able to rightly say at that point, that wasn't me, that was the Holy Spirit at work within me. So the whole point is that the, the seeming par this paradox, this seeming contradiction about free will versus God's control dissolves when you recognize that there's different time perspectives at, at play there, okay? Now, I want to I turn to um, Paul's larger argument, his reason for writing this uh, epistle to the, the Galatians in the first place. And, and the thing I like about the book of Galatians is that it is an apologetic. Now, usually uh, we think of apologetics as being defending Christianity against other worldviews or other religions. In our day, it might be, you know, postmodern religious pluralism or uh, scientific materialism, which says all there is, is is the material world. There is no God. There are no such things as minds and souls. Or it could be other uh, world religions like uh, Islam uh, that we defend Christianity against and show why Christianity is the uniquely accurate understanding of the world in which we all live. Um, in this case, Paul's apologetic is, is a little different. What he's doing is, is trying to correct a misunderstanding of what Christianity is. So in these churches in the region of Galatia, churches that he had helped to plant, there's a false teaching going around, and it's a form of legalism, which says that in order to be saved, you must first go through a series of hoops to become more Jewish, that, that you need to follow Jewish, Jewish ritual practices before you can receive uh, the gift of salvation, okay? And, and Paul actually displays a bit of impatience and a bit of unkindness so worked up is he about the fact that this false teaching is, is coming into churches that he loves and helps plant. So his impatience is found in the fact that he doesn't follow the correct progression of, of a formal epistle. So the epistles uh, are very formulaic. They include a greeting and a thanksgiving and a, and a body and a further greeting. There's a number of steps that you have to go through to write a New Testament epistle. And Paul skips the thanksgiving. In every one of his other epistles, he would thank God, after the greeting, he would thank God for the, the people to whom he's addressing his letter. In this case, he doesn't do that. And he does that by design. He wants them to sit up and take notice that he didn't thank God for them and that he's pretty serious about, he want, what, about what he wants to share with them. At the beginning of what we call chapter three, he refers to them as, oh, foolish Galatians, okay? That's not a very kind thing to say 
today or then. It's, it's all by design. Paul wants to get their attention and make them, make them understand that they're departing from the true gospel, which is all about um, salvation being by grace through faith without anything that we have to do to work for salvation. Um, so, so one of the, if, if you will, the, the heart of his message is in, in verse 311, and I want to take you there, and I think we have it on the screen, uh, where he says, O diakois, that's the Greek, O diakois, and it's translated differently uh, in different English translations, and I want you to see this. In, in some, like the New English version, it says, Dikaios is translated, the righteous shall live by faith. In the ESV and others, it's the just shall live by faith. And I wanted to show you here in the Spanish, any, any Spanish version you get, there'll only be one word, and that is the justo. Um, so there's just one Greek word, dikaios, and, and it's cognates, dikaiosune, justice. Uh, whereas we tease it out and sometimes translated righteous, sometimes translated justice. Uh, and, and Ken has pointed this out to you before. The reason I, I want to dwell here for a minute is because I think that we, we who are products of the Protestant Reformation, who get the fact that we don't work for our own salvation, but that it comes purely by grace, by what Christ accomplished on the cross, we still end up in a fairly legalistic or pharisaic way by the way we parse out this word dikaios. So when we think of justice, we recognize right away that we're talking about relationships with other people and, and with the planet itself and things like that. When we talk about righteousness, we tend to think of it more as a personal, uh, a personal thing, right? And we live in the most individualistic culture ever to inhabit the planet. And so what I'm suggesting is that when we think about righteousness in, in personal terms, it makes it easier on us to feel good about ourselves. That is, and if I, and if I uh, hedge that word righteous about with a whole bunch of rules, you know, like in my, my father's day, it was we Christians don't smoke or drink or kiss girls that do, right? Anytime we, anytime we parse out different sins and say, that's the one God hates, because it doesn't happen to be my own, we're really landing back in the same sort of spot as the Pharisees and the legalists in, in the Galatian church that, that Paul is calling out here. And, and we're making it easy on ourselves because I can pretend to be righteous. I, I, can, I can come up with a list of things that I won't do and not do them. And, and I can find other Christians who, who agree with me on those and we can get together and feel real good about ourselves because of our external behaviors and, and such. Whereas if what we're called to is justice and being just, why that means that as I go through my day, all of those unplanned divine appointments which take me past instances of injustice and such, I might actually have to do something about that. I might have to stop and, and, and deal in relationship with somebody else whom I'd rather not, 
Okay, do, do, so you, do you see that, that the way we in our individualistic society have parsed out righteousness and, and made it all about that and made it a personal thing that we're really not fulfilling the, the holistic understanding of this word dikaios. We're not being just, we're not doing justice, we're just doing our own little righteous thing, okay? I wanted to share our, our text, our Fruit of the Spirit text from a, yet a different translation that'll help us see that these Fruit of the Spirit are not about personal morality, they're about how we deal with others. And so the, the book I'm gonna read from is called The Jesus Book, and it's a Wycliffe Bible Translator's translation into Hawaiian pigeon. So, um, and the reason for doing this is the Hawaiian pigeon kind of fleshes out these single words, love, joy, peace, patience, uh, and, and deals with them a little more fully. Um, so this is from Foda Galatia Pipo. But if we stay tight with God's spirit, he give us plenty love and aloha for everybody. He make us guys stay good inside. He make our hearts rest inside. He help us wait for the other guy and stay cool. So, so that sentence right there, he help us wait for the other guy and stay cool, that's a translation of macrothumia, which our English versions just translate patience. Going on, he helps us think good about the other people and like do good kind stuff for them. He help us do what we promise. He help us make nice to people and do them with good kind heart. He help us to stay in charge of ourselves. No more rules that say you can no do all that kind stuff. So I hope what you saw there is there's a lot of the other guy and the other people in this list of the fruits of the spirit. It, it's about relationship. It's not just about my relationship with God. The brokenness at the fall that Christ came to redeem is our relationship with God, with self, with other people, and with the rest of creation. And so this concept of justice has to do with all those things, and the fruit of the Spirit are right in line with that. They're, they're about relationships, not about me. Um, so let's see, I wanna land this plane in the next few minutes. Um, so Galatians 2.16, which is another one of the kind of thesis texts of, of Paul's whole epistle here to the Galatians, um, says in part, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is one of the, the main texts that the Protestant reformers like Luther took and, and argued against the Catholic Church about. So at that time, not so much today, but at that time there was a real division between what Luther was saying and what the Catholic Church was saying. The Catholic Church was, was really saying that when, when the Bible talks about justification, being made right with God, that, 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 that it's an ongoing process, that, that there's something really going on there. Whereas the Protestant reformers saw it in legal terms. That justification really meant we are declared righteous at the moment of salvation uh, in a legal way. God, God, the Father looks at Jesus the Son and sees his righteousness and justice and not our lack thereof. And he declares us righteous in that moment. And that was the emphasis of the Protestant reformers. And, and I think the truth is somewhere in between those two extremes. That is, that there is a, a sense in which we are legally justified 
at the moment of salvation, but there's also a sense in which the whole point of that legal justification is that we would enter into an ongoing relationship in which the fruit of the Spirit is worked out in our sanctification over time. So, so the illustration, and it's not original with me, I've heard it many places and even in song, is of a courtroom situation where Jesus is the judge and I'm in, I'm in the dock and I owe heavy, heavy fines. Fines so heavy that there's no way I can ever pay them. And at the point where the judge is supposed to pronounce judgment, Jesus gets up out of the judge's seat, walks down to me and says, I got gotcha. you. I'll pay the fine for you. I've already paid the fine for you, okay? So on the legal justification end of things, it's taken care of. I'm, I'm scot-free, right? But the reality of the New Testament picture is that in addition, Jesus says to me, well, you got a place to stay tonight? And I said, well, well, no, I don't. And he says, well, come home to my house. And, and in fact, I'll, I'll start proceedings to adopt you as one of my sons. And as time goes on, living in Jesus' house, I watch his love and joy and peace and patience. And little by little, I become more and more like him. Of course, the analogy breaks down because the truth of the matter is it's, it's more than just my following his example. But as our, our series text says, we actually have his Holy Spirit living in us, working out those virtues that we call here the fruit of the Spirit. And, and, and as our following of Christ progresses, as the years go by, we become more and more like him not because we're just emulating him and walking behind him and with him, but because his Holy Spirit is at work in us producing these fruits, including patience. Okay? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for, well, just for the truth of all that we've just talked about, that you paid the penalty for our sin, that you've adopted us as sons and daughters, and that you've not only set us an example in Jesus' life as recorded in the New Testament, but that you've actually given us of your Holy Spirit that we might be transformed into the righteous and just people that you intended us to be all along. We come to you with just unspeakable gratitude, giving you praise and thanks, and ask that you would, uh, we, we, we just would give you permission today for your Holy Spirit to be at work in us this moment, this day, this week, and the rest of our lives. It's in Christ's blessed name that we pray. Amen.